I experienced both their own expressions of uh, disgust and what I felt to be some attempts to kind of evoke or provoke feelings of disgust in me. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, 6 o'clock UK time, for a fresh podcast. Today we have a podcast with a bit of a difference. You're used to hearing David bring his experience and knowledge to light in asking questions and sharing anecdotes about his professional life. Today we thought we'd give you the chance to hear more about his many years of experience. So David Jones is a psychotherapist with extensive experience in clinical work, specialising in working with offenders within a prison treatment and health setting and with a focus on groups. And he's worked extensively in therapeutic communities with, and within other mental health settings and also in the voluntary sector. David has published a number of books and articles and we'll include their details in our show notes for anyone who wants to read those. As listeners will have picked up, David likes to throw himself into everything he does. And as well as being on the board of the International Association for Forensic Psychotherapy for several years, he was also secretary of this board for a period. He's also been a member of the research advisory group at HMP Grendon, where he's worked previously. And since 2008, he's been the prisons expert for the community of communities, prison therapeutic community at the Royal College of Psychiatrists. Lastly, David has been involved with the UK Personality Disorder Pathway Project since 2002. But before we get to quizzing David about his role, we have another unusual aspect to our podcast today. We thought it would be an idea to have a guest contribution to our discussion, um, so we've invited along Des McVeigh to help out. Now, I know Des very well since I've worked with him in various locations since 1996. Des is a consultant nurse psychotherapist with 40 years experience of nursing in a variety of settings and we first worked together in a medium secure unit before setting up the first mental health in-reach team in an English prison. Eventually we were approached to establish the first treatment service uh, for people labelled as um, dangerous by virtue of their severe personality disorder and whilst it was an awfully named initiative it offered a chance to create treatment opportunities for people who were unable to access any mental health treatment in prisons. We've also edited a book together about creating services for people with a history of trauma and no doubt Des will be back to discuss his experience but today he's taking David's role in the podcast with me whilst we get to quiz David about his his um, lifelong work. Welcome to Des, um, but also David. Thank you for inviting me on to your podcast. I have enjoyed listening to Locked Up Living and learned so much from the interesting topics that have been discussed. David, you've had a very long career as a psychotherapist. You've not always been a psychotherapist. How did you decide that that was a career path for you? Well, that's a very challenging question, actually, uh, Des. Um, I, I like the stress that you placed upon long. Uh, it has been quite a long time since I've been doing psychotherapy, although I, I haven't always been a psychotherapist. Um, but I'll tell you a bit about how that um, began. I do regard myself as somebody who's been extremely fortunate in life. When I think about it, who my parents, my mother and my father, were born not exactly at the beginning of the last century, but they lived through two world wars. And after the Second World War, they had to move out of London to a large council estate on the uh, northern outskirts of London. And, and that's where I grew up. So I think it must have been very difficult for them. but. Yeah, it was pretty good for me, really, because there were dozens and dozens and dozens of kids, more or less the same age as me, and I had lots of people to play with. I was also fortunate in that I had a an older brother who is very clever. Um, he still is very clever, and he was a terrific uh, example and mentor to me. And he went to the local grammar school in, in, in Watford, 
and I was able to go there too. I mean, looking back, I'm pretty sure that they took me because he did so well there. I'm not sure I really qualified on the grounds of my own kind of uh, capacity. And uh, when I was there, this is Watford Grammar School, it's a very fine school, actually. Every secondary school should be like it, but unfortunately they're not. I really, it was very similar to a public school in terms of the uh, facilities that it had. And I benefited from that, I have no doubt at all. But it was difficult for me because um, I suppose about half the kids were like me, came from council estates and ordinary schools, ordinary local schools. And the other half of the kids were kind of fed in from um, private schools and um, and there was very much of a, a classist kind of uh, divide which I I was aware of um, although I saw it mainly in terms of my own and my friends lack of ability um, because we were mainly in the in the were you conscious of the dichotomy between the two groups at the time I, I was aware of I was aware of it in terms of, um, well, first of all, knowing that most of the people in the A and B classes came from uh, private schools, um, but actually seeing my friends and colleagues in the C classes as just not being as good. And we got on with things and we were good at sports and things like that. So I was, a, I was aware of it. So... Um, Anyway. Did you experience a, a sense of sectarianism between the groups? No, I wouldn't say it was sectarian, or at least I wasn't aware of it being sectarian, um, because I wasn't partic I wasn't particularly um, aware of any sects. I mean, it was a Church of England uh, was the prevailing religion, um, and everyone, as far as I knew, would write Church of England on their form when asked what religion they uh, they uh, they were but it was mainly to do with class that was my understanding of it my reading of the situation so i enjoyed being there and i learned a lot from some particular masters who were very good at teaching english literature for example and some of the other sciences and history and I picked up a great deal about making one's way in the world but um, once we got into A-level territory I really struggled and I dropped out and I roamed around Europe for a number of years I worked on a boat and then I came back and I worked at the British Museum for a couple of years and then I found that I had to make a decision about what I wanted to do. As I say, I was very fortunate because I don't think young people today have the same range of choices with the kind of paucity of qualifications that I had at the time. So I, I thought I want, to I want to choose between working with something to do with anti-apartheid or something to do with homelessness. And as it turned out, I joined a uh, charity called uh, the Simon Community and, and was sent up to Liverpool, where I did several months before being sent down to Oxford. And I worked with the homeless there for a number of years. So clearly that was the formation of my path which led to me training as a social worker and then working in psychiatry in a small psychotherapy unit and in a therapeutic community. And the next step was to train as a psychotherapist. So, sorry, that's a very long answer to your straightforward question, Des. Did you choose to work in... The forensic practice at this time, uh, as it appears, you've always chosen quite passionately to work um, for the more underprivileged. 
Well, where I was working, um, so this at the Phoenix unit in Oxford, um, and then at the Ashurst clinic, and I had some connection with the Lee community, which was a drugs therapeutic community. We were working in the field of uh, forensics as well as with mainstream psychiatric work. There were no uh, forensic units at that time, so I was involved with that uh, at that time. And, and of course, as I trained to be a psychotherapist, there was a particular focus upon um, delinquency, that is, people who um, differed from what we would talk of as being yeah, the norm, who would do delinquent things. So thinking about what made people um, break out from the normal was often a focus of the kind of psychotherapeutic training at that time. And why did you decide to specialise in forensic mental health? And I have done throughout my life, really, and I've often thought about uh, that. I certainly um, feel much more comfortable in some settings than in others. So I've always felt comfortable working in therapeutic communities where there's a deliberate concentration on things being evened out as far as uh, possible. And of course, I found that to be the case working in the prison service as well, in the therapeutic uh, communities in the prison uh, service. Do you think, um, do you think the awareness of class in, had played any role in your kind of like choice of, of client groups? I'm just thinking that being in the grammar school as a working class boy may have felt a bit you may have felt a bit marginalised and it's interesting you've gone on to work with very marginalised groups. Yes, I think that's that's a good point, Naomi. Do you think the term forensic is helpful, David, or don't you think that it further marginalises an already marginalised group? Sorry, Des, can you say you that again? Complex mental health problems would be would have been much more sufficient. Um, does it enrich the the service we found as a forensic service? Well, I suppose, as in many areas of, of our sort of broader field of work, it seems sometimes necessary to apply a name uh, and a label in order to provide a gateway for people to, to, to access funds and to provide a, a gateway, a treatment gateway. Um, um, and, and I think probably in the early 80s that I'm talking about, there was a there was a poor supply of facilities for what we describe as forensic patients. Uh, now, I do have other huge questions about whether psychiatric hospitals are a good place to treat people who have committed offences. Um, but then I don't think prisons are particularly good places to treat places with forensic illnesses uh, either. I think it really requires some service in between the two. And I think you've often mentioned that, uh, Naomi. I know that your MA dissertation was an exploration of why psychoanalysis had a problem with homosexuality. And you've also published uh, a few articles in this theme. How did you become interested in that area? I think as I uh, was doing more and more uh, individual work, I was referred quite a number of people who were grappling with issues about their sexuality. Um, and some of them uh, regarded themselves as being gay, others were uncertain and um, others were simply struggling with the whole area of sexuality. And so I, I, I was working with a number of, of uh, particularly men. It, it happened to be the kind of referral um, that I, I received yeah, a fair proportion of. And it was always yeah, quite challenging as, as I've, I've written 
the, 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 the thing about working psychotherapeutically with people is that one's doing it best really when one is at the edge of one's own kind of comfort zone so if I was working with people who had issues of around their their their, their own sexuality then that was bringing me to areas that I wasn't necessarily you know, comfort comfortable with so that's why I began you know reading about that you know more more broadly and and of course what I un uncovered was this terrible history um, of, of uh, psychology and uh, psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis, the history it had with issues around homosexuality. And one of the things I discovered and wrote about in, in one of the papers was the similarity between some of the things that some American um, psychoanalysts had, had written and quotations by Himmler, the infamous uh, Nazi propagandist. And I was really shocked by this, although, of course, knowing other things that I do now about you know, the history of medicine in America and politics in America, you know, I shouldn't really have been quite as surprised as I was at the time. So that became a very interesting area for me to delve into and could see that it was uh, an area of some controversy. You worked in the mental health system at a time when homosexuality was considered a mental illness. Uh, did you have any first-hand experiences of working with people that were diagnosed as homosexual? Well, it, um, I certainly I had friends who were referred to see psychiatrists because of their uh, homosexuality or their sexuality. I had a friend uh, who was a social worker who, when the management of the social services department he worked in discovered that he was gay, they suspended him and then reinstated him by saying he could only work uh, in the sight of others in the duty room. I had another friend who couldn't get on to a... How did you manage this dilemma, David? It must have been such a difficult time for you. Sorry, Des, how did I manage what? And how did you manage with, with your friend? Did you manage to support him? And did the service react with a strong sense of compassion for him, or was there, was there internal fractures? Were there competing beliefs about whether he was or wasn't a risk? Well, it was shocking. Um, and he was a very close friend of mine. In fact, he was a, a lodger of mine for for uh, quite a while, and 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 I remain friends with him for a long while afterwards until he died uh, quite uh, quite young, rather tragically. So it was one of those things that that at that time the social services department was encountering its own thinking about such phenomenon for the first time. And eventually he was able to progress within the department, take on a more senior job and do his job without direct supervision, which was some form of progress, I suppose. I'm not sure I was, at that time, I was the most introspective thinking sort of person. I probably managed it by drinking whiskey with him. Um, Stuart and I would drink a lot of whiskey together. So, so David, I, we were just talking about this subject before, um, well, whilst we were waiting for Des, and I was quite shocked to hear about the time frame that you were talking about um, all these difficulties, actually. Did you say it was as recently as the 90s? Even reading through uh, my papers and the MA dissertation that I wrote in about 99, I was struck really by how much things have moved on, um, at least in my thinking and in the kind of 
discourse that we would be having about these subjects. I think there are areas of the world where the discourse hasn't moved on quite so much, but generally speaking, within our field, I think they have. Yeah, well, keeping in touch with this concept, David, and, and drawing it into sort of well-being in prison, I'd like to draw your opinion on, you know, this concept of being homosexual in prison and, you know, questioning, is it allowed um, to be homosexual? And what's also prompted this question is a recent release from a, a governor in the high security state and in essence she was advising staff not to make themselves uh, erotic um, and the advice involved the following you don't show any cleavage don't adjust your uniform for it to be figure hugging don't smile too much uh, the skirt needs to be below the knees and don't wear any makeup and perfume and I'm sure you'll know that that places all the responsibility for um, being a sexual object on females. And in my experience in prisons, it has always been the case that females, particularly young, attractive females, carry this responsibility for being either objectified or erotic. But also I've noticed that many male officers adjust their shirts and they adjust their trousers to emphasize their physique. Uh, some wear short sleeves to display their particularly large biceps and are effectively successful at making themselves an object of possible sexual desire. Unless, of course, they blank out the fact that many prisoners will find them sexually attractive. Indeed, I have, on one occasion, I, I, um, I witnessed a prisoner provoke a particularly punitive, uh, if you like, macho prison officer to be rough on him and this was for the prisoner's own sexual gratification and of course the punitive prison officer wasn't aware that he was providing this man with material he could later masturbate to um, and I think this is how blank it is and I suppose my, my question is is um, do you think there has been any movement uh, on this process within the institution of the prisons and if there was training where should that training be focused um, because I really don't think it's fair that young females have to carry all the responsibility for objectification in prisons. I know that was a big question, I apologise. I was about to say, it's a big question, Des. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see where, we'll, where we can go with it. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so your description, really, of the kind of instructions that have just been issued to, I think, female officers, could have been taken from a psychiatric hospital in 1984, mm. the kind of things that were said to female nurses at that time. And I think what there is is a tremendous fear and anxiety about sexuality and how to manage it. And I don't think there's been hardly any progress in that area in the whole kind of period that I've been mm -hmm at work it's uh, still a, fr a, a frightening thing whether we're talking about females and the, the the anxiety that women will provoke men i use that word in inverted commas you know one phrase that's always stuck in my mind was from a newspaper report concerning a i think he was an athletics coach who been prosecuted for sexual abuse of uh, young women and one of the things he said to his charges was um, you will get me into a lot of trouble meaning that this young teenager was responsible yeah. for his urges and his failure to manage manage them mm -hmm. and I think that kind of attitude still permeates all of our institutions. Do you think um, do you think prison officers, the male prison officers and the, the culture of toxic masculinity, do you think that just blocks out the fact that they may be sexually provoking um, male prisoners and they may be poster boys and objects of 
masturbation fantasies? Or do you think it's just blanked out in, in the institution that it just doesn't exist and that all the sexual attraction is predominantly on young attractive females who have to dress like nuns in order to exist in this institution? Yeah, what a really good way of pushing it. That is, uh, there's, I think it, it is blanked out. And of course, the, the issue of sexual attraction in prisons is enormously complex. So same-sex attraction is both um, forbidden, in inverted commas, and scorned, and yet it happens. And it can happen that a powerful... Uh, man, be a prisoner or all, indeed a prison officer, can exploit another male for sexual mm-hmm. gratification, and that's viewed as being fine. Um, I mean, the word that's often used, of course, is bitch, which is a kind of unpleasant feminization. Yeah. That's talk about having somebody as their bitch. Um, but wouldn't it be really great to be having these kind of discussions uh, with a, a group of staff? And earlier on, I think you touched upon the idea of training. Um, and of course, this is where the area of training should be taking place in discussions yeah. about just this kind of thing, about the bulging biceps, about the mm-hmm. sexualized tattoos on the, on the arms and so on and so forth. Yeah, and the fact that they, these male staff, you know, they, they cannot or will not tolerate the, the fact that they are poster boys for a lot of the men and, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of binary that they create about sexual attraction and sexuality just doesn't exist in society, but certainly not in, in prisons. So where, would the, where do you think the training needs to start? In order to, because in terms of security and forensic, if you walk, if a prison officer walks by a cell and there's a, another male prison officer in there, he won't take two looks, he'll just carry on walking. But if there's a female prison officer in there, he'll, he'll, they will take two or three looks because he assumes there's a chance of risk or possible sexual, sexual shenanigans going on. But that is not in his mind when it's a male on male. They just, they don't have that concept in their mind, um, and there's very, it's very, very. It's, I don't know of any reports in the entire prison estate where a male officer has been caught having sex with a, a male prisoner, and it's always in the news about females having sex with males, and I don't think for a minute that that hasn't happened, that a male officer has had sex with male prisoners. I, I can't agree with you more. It's it's a really complex area, but I think it, it's still concerning that in this day and age, senior governors are still assuming that all the sexual, or the proclivity to sexual behaviours relies very firmly with females. Thanks for that, David. And staying on your interest on homophobia, um, you've also written articles on the subject on how it serves as a motivation to kill. Do you think this is a common motivation for murder in your experience? Well, I don't know about common, um, but it's it's not unique. Um, and I suppose where my thinking about that developed and came from was the kind of encounters I was having with people where I experienced both their own expressions of uh, disgust and what I felt to be some attempts to kind of evoke or provoke feelings of disgust in me. And then what I found when I started working at um, uh, Grendon was a, a number of people had gotten into this um, pathway whereby they'd had or been on the verge of having intimate uh, encounters with somebody and that had escalated at some point and ended in a in a murder and the way that I understood that 
was that I have a basic premise that that uh, people have a kind of universal sexuality um, which can find expression according to circumstances, according to availability, according to means. But culturally, that's not acceptable. Um, that's forbidden and it's terrifying uh, to people. And when those kind of feelings are invoked within some people, then it gets uh, excavated or evacuated out of the self and onto somebody else. And that's the point at which it becomes uh, liable to attack and ending in, in the murder. And sometimes I suppose that, that part, that dynamic never gets disclosed because of the nature of how we treat or compartmentalise offending. So sex offending is compartmentalised in a very strict way that, you know, I have worked with prisoners who have killed and in working with them I've realised that they got sexually off to killing but they're not considered sex offenders and I'm sure as you know some men who have committed sex offences are, you know, it's been more about power and, and shaming and humiliating their victim and it wasn't, they weren't a source of sexual erotic arousal so I think we, we often miss those um, context and I suppose have you experienced that in your own practice that a lot of the the, the the source of the offending has not been addressed because we're too sort of parsimonious? Well no you're dead, dead right about that particularly the uh, um, prison programs which have these rather strict sets of criteria about what was um, uh, allowable in and what was not allowable in would not have seen most of these guys as uh, having a sexual um, arousal or a sec committing a sexual offence. And in a way, I didn't mind that because it seemed to me that, that some kind of CBT type programme wasn't particularly suitable um, any, any way to do that kind of work because it was deep. These were deep seated feelings and they were complex and took a lot of um, time and a lot of work in order to kind of, uh, well, in order to create a space that was safe enough for the individual to do the work within. Yeah, I think you have to strip it back layer by layer, which which isn't allowed. And, um, you know, I, I agree with you that the, that the concepts of which the prison work are, are driven more by the behaviour than the intent. Um, you know, so if, if I was to touch, you know, if I was to touch someone's bum, that could be perceived as a sex offence. Or if I was to kick someone between the legs, a guy between the legs, it would be considered a violent offence. And I've touched some, I've physically touched someone's genitals in one case and, and physically touched someone's buttock in another case, but they both be compartmentalised differently. And I think it's because they look at the behaviour and not the intent and I think that's what you're saying too is that we don't we don't dig deep enough to find out what the core intent is. No, I think that's that's right and indeed it, it kind of illustrates in my mind at any rate, you know, the the major gulf of difference between the kind of work that I do and I think the work you did at the Fens and most of the most of the prison type programs because I think our work is involved with getting engaged with somebody, providing a safe place, giving them a chance to express their feelings, to make a connection with us and to enable them to think about things as well as to feel them. Um, but that's very risky. And I don't think it's very risky, very risky. I mean, I mean, just at its most banal level, I do sometimes look back on my career and think, actually, I'm very lucky to have got through this career without some disaster. Um, 
and actually I've had a few disasters but mainly involving management rather than patients. Yes, it's this concept of of model prisoner, isn't it? So you leave your offended behaviour at the gate and pick it up on the way out. Um, uh, and I do think that that's a, that's a problem with prisons is that the too much time is focused on protecting the institution uh, and not protecting the public in the long term. And I think both... The, uh, in your concepts was to, in order to protect the public, the environment has to be more risky. Um, in a contained way, but it has to be more risky to protect the public in the longer term. Would you agree with that? You, you were speaking basically about how, in some ways, prisons try and function as a sterile environment, but actually that doesn't serve the interest of public protection because yeah. what it means is that people, when they're in prison perhaps aren't ending up acting out in and revealing their dangerousness and actually in order to to really understand whether someone's risky you need to be able to there needs to be some freedom to see that within the environment to protect the public in the long term they're only prepared to protect the public so long as the institution remains um, sterile in terms of safety and I think to do your work and our work, there needs to be a level of risk generated. You need to see the offended behaviour in order to treat the offended behaviour. Uh, I was just asking whether you, you agree with that concept. I do agree with that. Um, and I was just thinking about uh, what you were saying, because it seems to me that one of the ways that prison services respond to their to the risk that they perceive is to reduce things, to have less and less, less and less available, less and less openness. And on the other, other hand, to have more and more rules. Um, so they, they believe that everything can be legislated for or against. So, so it becomes more and more complex in that way and more and more barren in other ways and yet I remember my, my friend Lorna Rhodes who did research in the supermaxes in the northwest of America saying because she, she would visit these places where where individuals were shutting their individual cells and had ostensibly no communication with any other prisoner and yet they did always manage to communicate Moving on, armchair psychologists often speculate that homophobia is driven by a latent homosexual desire. Is there any truth in this when it comes to to hate crime that targets a gay community? Um, well, I think as I've kind of suggested already, my my view, my opinion, is that human beings have a universal sexuality so I'll talk about men because I know more about this man anyway uh, can be attracted to virtually anything um, according to circumstances and uh, and that's been the case for centuries tens of thousands of, of uh, years and and we can see that i mean it's simple enough to see that through the field of art for example if you watch a fellini film fellini satiricon is one that comes to mind or i was recently i was recently watching one called um interview with the vampire which starred tom cruise and brad pitt um both you know, made up in this highly feminised uh, you know, manner. And I think men are attracted to that. Men do find that attractive. But... Um, attractive, and er attractive erotically or attractive... Um, I think um, attractive erotically. I mean, I think one segues into the... Uh, uh, other, I was. I've been watching this series on Greek myths, which is a French 
series of Greek myths, and it's kind of Greek myths for adults. You know, we've had series on Greek myths for children over here. This is for adults, so it tells everything in its whole uh, range of blood and sexuality. Um, and it features um, uh, paintings, paintings by the Grand Masters. <clears throat> and it struck me how many of these well, virtually all of them actually feature paintings of naked women. And um, so these grandmasters were, great masters were painting essentially what was the pornography of, the, of their, their, their age. So I'm not quite sure where that was leading me, except that I believe that there is this universal sexuality and that's why it's acceptable for strong men in prison to have their prison bitch who will invariably be a weak weaker what's seen as in inferior uh male so they managed to they managed to encapsulate that dynamic within the concept of toxic masculinity beautifully put yes whereas culturally outside of the prison that may happen to some extent, but generally speaking, it's thought to be terrifying. I was watching Ozark. I don't know if you've watched Ozark. Um, I think in series one, I've just started watching series one. Um, so there was this scene of this rather, this bearded redneck um, falling Lama. for... Is that who it is? And uh, and of course it's a scene which teeters on the edge of violence all the time. Um, so there we are. Yeah, I was also thinking though, David, that that in terms of homophobia, I think worked with quite a few people where they've killed or severely assaulted gay men because they've equated that with with um, paedophilia which is you know obviously that that's horrible um, equation was lurking there in the anecdote that you provided earlier about kind of restrictions and controls being placed on on um, a gay man working in a in a service that somehow there, there was something that was dangerous about him so it's not only that gay men are having to cope with um, challenging the stereotypical norm but also that there is seen something dangerous seen, seen about them as well. Well again um, I, I, I see that uh, it's uh, pretty much universal that uh, young people are attractive to adults um, uh, but we have very strict, generally speaking, very strict um, social rules and regulations which manage that, and, and, and that's perfectly right. That's the way our society develops. Uh, it, it creates a kind of set of regulations which manage the more kind of bestial and violent yeah, potential activities of, of uh, human beings. But... Of course, in a way, it's easier to locate all of that so-called bad stuff into particular individuals and then to hate them and to persecute them and, if necessary, to kill them uh, in, the, in the mistaken belief that that relieves us of the kind of responsibility of our own internal world. I don't know if you've, you've watched the movie The Power of Dog. Um, it's a recent movie. And I think that exemplifies that very well the, the juxtaposition of toxic masculinity fighting off these um, you know, homosexual desires. Um, I think it, he portrays it really well. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, in fact, I thought it was going to end in a murder. Um, I thought that's the way it was uh, headed. And it did, of course, but not the way I expected it. Moving on, David, you, you've also written about another experience that's that's pretty common for therapists, and that's the need to be able to tolerate being hated. And do you think therapists are adequately prepared for this? I, I think that if you're working with hatred 
within um, a population within the community that have never used violence, that's one thing. But to be working with someone's hatred when they have previously, you know, carried out acts of enormous hatred, you know, huge physical acts of violence. Do you think, do you think we're prepared for that when we do our training? Um, well, some of us are and some of us aren't, I suppose. It depends on who we are and what the training is, is like. Certainly, when when I did my training, there was a great emphasis upon um, positive transference or you know, sexualised transference being loved and how one managed that. And unfortunately, you know, a fair number of psychotherapists don't manage that particularly well. Um, but in some ways, you know, being in the position of being disliked and hated is even more you know, difficult. Well, they're both difficult, actually. Um, uh, of course, because if you're being loved, it's very easy to be lured into a kind of sense of self-satisfaction. Whereas if one's being hated, that's a really challenging place to be. Um, because it raises so many issues for you. I mean, if you're working in private practice, for example, you're having to work with this whole difficult range of feelings. There's the, there's the straightforward emotion of a situation. How do you withstand this kind of barrage of scorn or dislike, hatred, being looked down upon, being despised, people stirring up disgust in you, all those kinds of things. But then you also have the feeling, well, you know, this is my living. Uh, this is how I earn my living. This is my, if this person doesn't stay with me, um, you know, that's a cut in my wage. You know, you can't ignore all of those facets of your relationship with that person. And I don't think those things get talked about nearly enough, no. I think, um, I think my experience of being hated in groups and in prisons has been, um, has been very difficult in terms of, I think at times I would have preferred to be more frightened of being hit than having to sit and be consumed with, you know, ten men absolutely hating me for what I represent and I'm trying to navigate my way around that and often my co-facilitators would you know look the other way so the the object of the hate would stay on me um, and it used to remind me of you know school if you're with your mates and the school bully picks on you your friends look the other way then when the bully goes away they're going well you're right <laughs> so it, it, for me it was I, I think the fear of being hit was was easier to manage than the fear of going into a room and being absolutely hated. And I don't know if that's because the hate could have been manifest as, as me being raped or me being murdered or me being killed. Again, things that don't get talked about enough, uh, that they are the risks if you let that hate go too far, you, you will become the, the victim. Um, and do you think there are, there's a difference between managing that hate in a forensic setting and managing hate in sort of community private practice? Yeah, one is always on the edge. One never really knows what's going to come in through the door. Um, I mean, I can remember very clearly working at Littlemore in, in Oxford and doing a, a small group and one of the members taking out a knife and coming towards me and um, and I got up and he kind of followed me slowly round the room and I do think that if I'd stayed sitting um, in my chair he probably would have stabbed me um, so that was a kind of a very rare occasion where the kind of anxiety about the kind of psychological projection had been outweighed by the the physical acting out well that that i think that sounds really really frightening i think naomi you had a similar experience with the knife 
yes, yeah, yes, actually shows how I'd found a way, my way of, of managing that was to dismiss it really. So it wasn't an actual knife, but somebody who'd, who'd, who'd handed in, um, it handed in a manufactured uh, weapon. And so we didn't know about it when it was a threat, but it was quite frightening to think that it was a threat afterwards. So I was a bit taken by surprise then. <laughs> but I think, um, I say, I think it, there's the work that, that you and Naomi did at the Fens was at a different level, really, to the work that we did at uh, Grendon. There was much more of a focus on the work that the men did among themselves than that via intervention from the uh, group facilitator. Um, and um, my outstanding memory of, of being at Grendon is that I always felt very, very safe there. Even if I was working up on the threes, which is, you know, is four floors up, um, on my own, um, I always felt quite safe because I believed, whether it was true or not, um, that there was a kind of group security which would protect all of us. And I never had cause to to doubt that. Yeah, I used to, I just reminded me of working in, um, I worked in Carstairs before moving south and Carstairs is, is villas, it's, it's separate villas and we used to collect patients from each villas and um, take them to workshops etc and and they did say at the time there that you know you're, you would be safer with a group of prisoners than two because two could agree but the group wouldn't agree um, so I think there is something about feeling and I used to feel safer in the groups than I did in the one-to-one -one sessions where I was the, the sole focus of um, so there, there was, I think there was for me a sense of safety in the fens about the, the, the milieu protecting us, if you like, the milieu that we built clinically protecting you, which would be similar to that of the fens, that the milieu is a protective dynamic. And again, that goes, that is not attended to by the, the prison, it's not acknowledged explicitly that the milieu in itself is a protective factor. Um, so I can fully understand feeling safe, whereas when I was at Leeds Prison and I was away at the back of sea wing, I was proper terrified that I might not make my way back. I've worked in much more dangerous places. I mean, when I was a 20-year-old and working in the wet shelter, um, yeah, I can remember being properly given a kicking yeah, there. Which, what's, yeah. what's a wet shelter? Uh, well, it was an open shelter for men who were uh, otherwise sleeping rough, but mainly spent their time around the town drinking meths and surgical spirit. Yeah, I think that there's there's a truth in that as well that we are we are safer because we know the risk and the potential, whereas in the lower secure units and acute psychiatric wards and in the community you don't know the potential because it hasn't been acted out yet um, so in a perverse way the more secure you work with people the safer you possibly are if you attend to the, mm. the, 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 the perceived not the perceived the actual risks that are in front of you mm. so moving on David you've, you've also written about disgust from the position of a therapist can you say a bit more about this and again, do you think that therapists are adequately prepared for, for reflecting on disgust in therapy? Yeah, well, we touched upon this a bit earlier on. And um, I suppose as, as, as I was meeting more and more people in my um, individual work, um, it, it struck me that disgust was an important emotion um, 
that hadn't been so much focused upon. So we talked and read about shame quite a lot, and uh, and that is an important uh, feeling and emotion. There's no doubt about that, and contributes to a lot of um, self harm in in particular. Um, whereas it seemed to me that that disgust was an even more primitive um, emotion um, that kind of got buried but it was so powerful and it worked in different ways I and mean, it works through the idea of contamination which is presumably where it originated all those hundreds of thousands of years ago this fear of contamination through bad uh, uh, substances and and it it gradually came to have a kind of emotional meaning as 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 well and I had this very powerful illustration uh, which I wrote about once where a friend of me was talking about um, having a sitting in a restaurant eating a prawn cocktail and uh, suddenly a cat which seemed to be rather beautiful approached him obviously wanting some food and uh, it turned its face and the half the face was torn away exposing the flesh and the the guy was filled with this sense of disgust and since then he's never been able to think about let alone eat prawns or prawn cocktails because it had become associated with uh, disgust so so that was the kind of thing I was thinking about how that got kind of expressed uh, in in relationships how it could be a kind of powerful provoker of outbursts of emotion really well that both these emotions are so important but they're very they're not often explored or discussed or um, understood in, in a broader sense of society that you know if you take the Houses of Parliament, the whole concept is to shame the other side. It's not to put forward a, an articulate argument. It's to how can I shame this person into making them look ridiculous because that will kill them off. And I, I have a, an, a, an experience where an officer, uh, he found um, make this um, young prisoner who had sexually abused children had made made his own child pornography, he's put children's faces on uh, adult pornography pictures and the officer was disgusted, um, you could see the disgust and his reaction was to shame the prisoner um, and he, he verbally shamed him and then he locked him behind his door and I remember saying to the officer, do you know what he's doing now? And he says, no, I says, he's thinking about children and masturbating because you've acted out your disgust, which he's experienced all his life, you've shamed him, so you've given him the equipment to go behind his room and feel so ashamed that his only way of releasing that is to, to, to be attracted to children. And, and I think that's the perpetuation that you know society does as well when the, the son naming shame all these paedophiles on the front page, they're, they're effectively pushing them towards the playground. They're, they're, they're increasing the risk by using this concept of shame in a, in a way that's pathological. And I think you're very, very right. These two very, very dangerous emotions aren't explored or discussed enough. And I'm, I'm just wondering, why do you think that is? Well, um, I might answer that in a minute, Des, but I want to point out that earlier on you were asking about training and where should training start? Well, you've just given a brilliant example of where training should start. It should start in the setting, creating a culture, creating a milieu where people have got experience, knowledge and awareness like you can work with those who have less experience, knowledge and awareness. And I think I that, in, in fairness and all due respect to the officer, he accepted that. He accepted that. He 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 reached out to me later, and and actually we discussed it, and it was a it was a learning curve for him, but he was able to. And what I, what we found at the fens was is that the staff that we worked with every day were, were buying into the concepts and getting it, 
but it was the managers who were detached from it that were completely not getting it. Um, and I think that kind of grew and grew. But yeah, with all respect, that was a learning experience. Of course, I've forgotten the uh, other part of your question by now. So. <laughs> and I expect you have I, I, No, no, Matt. The, the question <laughs> is why? Why when it's such a when it's such a driver for, I mean, I think disgust and reaction to shame is one of the biggest causes of murder in the UK, response to humiliation or shame. Um, it's, it's used in prison to enhance low self-esteem by staff. It's a cheap enhancement of low self-esteem. It's used to uh, ha have a hierarchy of offending, you know, where the shame is distribu distributed in terms of what offence you've committed. And here it is that we don't explore it in a we don't explore it in these institutions. Is it because it's too dangerous to explore? Is it because it's too complicated to understand? I'm just wondering what you think stops us from uh, aren't you talking really about the culture of the whole institution well the broader institution of the prison service and each prison each prison has its own institution and they are enormously difficult places to change it seems to me not not least because the leadership of those institutions itself changes too rapidly um, and has too little influence over the things that really matter they may have lots of influence over things that in my view don't matter so much but less influence on the key things regarding the basic culture the basic training of of of, of their staff and there's a whole host of reasons you know, for that yeah not not least is finance obviously lack of resources but it's more than that it's to do with the kind of in underlying ethos of needing to one needing to punish people by ways more than simply taking their liberty away um, and two being seen to do that punishment in a way that's as heartless as possible and I suppose the problem with that is is that the punishment process is very idiosyncratic and some of the punishment is actually pleasure for the recipient because they seek pleasure in being the victim. They seek pleasure in being downtrodden because they don't have to look at their offending behaviour. Or going back to a, a previous example, they get pleasure about being brutalised uh, in, in an erotic sense. So it's, it's very... There's one simple logic for punishment, again, which is... It's sad that we're at this stage so far down. I, I think prisons began, I think, in 1875. And if you look at some of the literature from then, there's very, very little change in the, the infrastructure, very little change. But I think, finally, kind of like drawing things to a, a close, the, the fact that you've written so openly about your own feelings of anxiety and disgust, David, would suggest a degree of being able to tolerate them. How come you've been able to tolerate these kind of strong and pleasant feelings in the course of your work? And what strategies would you recommend for protecting your own well-being for those people that do this work on a daily basis? Well, um, how to answer that question? I think I've been able to learn more as I've gone on. I don't think I was particularly reflective or insightful 40 years ago. I think I've been fortunate, as I mentioned earlier on, in being able to be able to work with colleagues who have been enormously supportive, wise and helpful. And I've done that in London, in Oxford, in the prison service. But I've also had some encounters that have been enormously punishing where I felt that people were out to get me and they, they've been some of the hardest experiences where I've really felt 
that the people who had control over my life kind of wanted to see me dead. And I, I say that because that's how it felt. And I'm sure they would say they, they just wanted to see the back of me. But actually my subjective experience was that they wanted me to be wiped off the face of the earth. And um, that was a very kind of uh, damaging time for me, but I'd learnt quite a lot from it. I learnt not to be too trusting, not to be too overconfident, and to always have a few friends and confidants around who I could speak to and who would support me through thick and thin. That sounds very sad experience, David. I've experienced it myself some occasions. It can be a very lonely place where you you do feel the hate of the institution um, and you feel that they want to annihilate you. Um, and it is that sense of being annihilated and not existing anymore that, that's very frightening to, to come to terms with. Uh, so I, I, I fully empathise with you on that dynamic I think I, I suppose I'd just like to offer up one other strategy David in that I think I, I think in terms of personal characteristics you, you're a very humble person and that's come across repeatedly during interviews so actually you're you're prepared to I think probably to engage with your feelings that perhaps feel uncomfortable because you're not concerned to be portraying yourself as somebody who's managing things perfectly and I think that that has probably helped stand you in good stead when working with stuff that is so difficult to to work with you you know your willingness to to have that revealed um, rather than to try and hide it thank you yeah I, I, I think as well the other side of that is as I said earlier I've been very very fortunate well, thank you very much for the invitation of being here this afternoon. Good to see you, Des, and really interesting to talk with you. Thank you, David. And really nice to be able to work with you again and have um, you lob your, <laughs> your, your little bombs into the conversation, <laughs> which was very much uh, Des's reputation in, um, in running groups, was that he'd bring these random massive topics up um, with... Within a short sentence. I can imagine, yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much.